Hey listeners, just a quick note at the top of this episode that we had an audio issue while recording and the audio quality on today's episode isn't quite up to the standards you're used to. It's still a fantastic episode and we think you're going to love listening, but you might hear a little bit more ambient noise than you're used to. We've got it all sorted and we'll be back with the quality you're used to in next week's episode. Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Inkheart by Cornelia Funka. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Are you excited to say Funka all episode? (laughs) I am. I am. I also like the German, original German title is Tintenherz. Ooh, I like that. Okay, wait, you studied German, right? I did, yeah. Okay, so you're going to be our our expert guide. (laughs) (laughs) This is not, it's not set in Germany. So it's, there isn't really, there aren't a bunch of German names or um, it's all very Italian, which is fun. Well, I always wonder about translating fantasy because I, um, for a while, I don't do this anymore. I think for obvious reasons, but when I would travel, I would purchase a Harry Potter book in another language and I for for like a project like a personal project once read a little bit of one in French and it's just I mean if you're a translator translating fantasy stuff you must have so much fun because you get to like make up all of these yeah words that because the author the original author makes things up and then you get to decide oh should this just be exactly what they did since it's a made-up word or should I try to make it like sound similar but in this language it's just it's so cool so um I would be curious to know more about um I mean I guess there aren't particular like fantastical creatures or very world specific things in ink card it's pretty grounded in the real world but still it's grounded in the real world and just chock full of literary illusions. And so it feels very rooted in like fairy tale and classic kid lit, which is what we're talking about this semester. And so that was a really fun treat. Mm-hmm. All right, Chelsea. Well, should we give a quick summary and then we'll get into this? Because I have, I have a feeling there might be people who have not come across this book. Yeah, um, this is, so it's part of our classic season, obviously, but it was published in 2003. So I pulled a Kirkus starred review, which we don't have for like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but I thought it would be fun to have it for this book. So I'll just read that really quickly for our synopsis. So um, the starred review says it is hard to avoid preciosity in books about books, but here Funka pulls off the feet with vigor. Maggie, an avid reader, lives alone with her father, a bookbinder. Her mother disappeared years before. When a disturbing stranger named Dustfinger introduces or intrudes on their space, 
She gradually discovers that the barrier between books and the real world is permeable and that an ill-fated read-aloud years ago unleashed Capricorn, who, quote, would feed a bird to a cat on purpose, and the little creature screeching and struggling would be as sweet as honey to him. Funka takes her time with her tail, investing her situations with palpable menace and limbing her characters with acute sensitivity. She creates in Maggie a stalwart heroine who never loses her childish nature, even as she works to contain the monster and bring her mother back. Master translator Bell takes the German text and spins out of it vivid images and heart-stopping language that impel the reader through this adventure about narratives, a true feast for anyone who has ever been lost in a book. What a great little summary and really <laughs> I feel like episode over <laughs> right <laughs> they capture so much of what I love about the the book and in, in this review I'm really excited to hear about your reading experience because this was your first time reading Inkheart yep I read this as a kid and it is one of the books that I specifically remember hiding a flashlight under my pillow and staying up all night reading Mm-hmm. And I can totally see why I was sucked into it. It's very plotty. Like there's a lot of like plot shifts and kind of surprises. Um, and a book about books for a kid who loved books. I mean, I can see why I loved it. So um, before we really, really get into personal experience, though, Sarah, I just want to address that this book was published in 2003 and we're putting it in our classic season. And granted, like we wanted to talk about some children's literature and translation, but I think we should talk just a little bit about this classic status and like what makes a children's classic. I think that 20 years is a long time for a book to be consistently on the shelves recommended to kids and in multiple covers and in bookstores. So I feel like 20 years for a children's book. I think that's I fair. I th- okay. I think that's fair for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, 20 years isn't really a generation anymore. People are having yeah. kids later, but there's still this element of like, you you read it as a kid, Chelsea, and now you are a mom, right? And I think that that's part of why children's lit becomes classic so much faster is we can directly Mm. transmit it from generation to generation. The books that we loved as kids, we can't wait to read to our kids. We stock our kids' shelves with, we think about. And so, yeah, I think 20 years fits that timeline perfectly versus, you know, adult literature it it takes longer for that to get proliferated throughout classrooms or, um, you know, just considered to have staying power in cultural consciousness and in kind of academic or more of those gatekeepy classics defining institutions. And then I also think the other thing about Kitslet is like, and we know this is true about classics. But I think it's not always how we think about adult classics. Kidlet becomes classic because it's popular. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's really like what it what is selling? What are people loving? What are people reading over and over? Not necessarily what is pres- prestigious and commenting on this current cultural moment or capturing something about the zeitgeist that we might think of for what becomes an adult 
classic. And so, yeah, I think Kidlet can become classic faster and with like more gusto <laughs> than yeah. adult literature can. That makes so much sense. I also, something that I've loved about talking about Kidlet this season so far is that element of popularity and nostalgia. But then as we've been talking about these books, the themes are still relevant and discussable. One way that we personally define the classics is that they create conversation. And I wasn't sure if this one would fit that as much because I just remember it as being such a fun fantasy. But this book has a lot to say about books and reading and narrative and story. And there was a lot more meta commentary than I expected. Um, Not to mention all of the allusions. It was so fun, Sarah, to read all of the little uh, inscriptions before each chapter and come across Huckleberry Finn and Alice in Wonderland and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all of these books that we have just read and discussed and see them all connected in this one. Yes. And I, I want to add on that note that I split my reading experience between the audio and the physical copy and the audio copy I had did not have those. Oh, that's, I mean, I can see why, because yes. I think it would be hard. I think it would really take you out of the story if you were listening to it, mm-hmm. but they're so lovely. Yes. And so I was really glad that I was going back and forth. Cause I at least noticed yeah. <laughs> If you listeners um, listen to the audio and are thinking, wait, I missed that. Yes, you probably did miss it. And maybe pick up a copy of the physical book from your library so you can just page through and see some of those. Or honestly, here's another great thing about the Kidlet. Paperback copy of this is like eight bucks, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so grab one for your shelves and you can peruse those little chapter epigraphs um, at, at your at your leisure. All right, Sarah. So let's just talk about general impressions. You spotted this on a staff picks shelf at a bookstore and just picked it up. What drew you to this book? So I think so I got it actually last summer. Um, it was, yeah, it was on a staff shelf pick at the tattered cover and it was actually next to the Penderwicks, the first book in the Penderwicks series. And at the time I had been like revisiting some middle grade and YA that I loved and particularly the Nevermore series and trying to find some new kind of comforting things to read or listen to. And so I just grabbed them both. I mean, I can't remember what the shelf talker about Inkart said um, exactly, but I know that it mentioned that it was um, a book about books. And I was like, oh, that sounds so comforting and delightful right now. I picked it up and then I don't know, I just didn't ever read it as happens. Yeah. <laughs> <a> <laughs> And then when we were talking about planning the series of children's classics, I think you mentioned it as a book in translation. And I was like, oh, it's so serendipitous because I picked it up at the bookstore. So that was perfect. And I really, really liked it. I had so much fun reading it. I will say I read it fast. And so I 
I might be vague on some specific details. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of one of the joys of reading middle grade yeah, or why that's the fun. You can just get swept up in it. You can move through it quickly. You just feel like, you know, even if you miss a few things, you're getting a really compelling, delightful, captivating story. I fully felt like that. I also, I mean, I have not read any other German children's fiction that I know of. Um, and so the tone struck me and maybe we could talk more about that as we go on. Yeah. As being not necessarily like maybe a little darker than some American middle grade, but not in a bad way, not in a scary way. Yeah. Um, not in a brooding way. Um, and so I think that cut with the like charm of the books about books to make just this really perfect, captivating tone without being too sweet or too scary. So I, I loved it. I'm glad. I really liked rereading it. And I kept thinking, oh my goodness, I can't wait to read this aloud to Theo. (laughs) Just like you were saying, passing down these books. I think this is such a fun read aloud. And I remember going on to read a lot of Cornelia Funke books. By a lot, I mean like at least two more. (laughs) But, you know, when you're a kid, that feels like a lot. Her books are chunky. and, um, And I really liked her other books as well. And yeah, I just, I was really struck by, I thought, Maggie, the main character, rang really true as a kid. Like, I didn't find her overly precocious. She felt very her age to me. Um, And then additionally, yeah, I was kind of struck. I guess, like, I don't remember this being kind of scary. Like I was up reading this with a flashlight. Like this is some kind of nightmare inducing stuff, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's intense at times. And I think especially because of how well-drawn kind of the real world is and how, I don't know, this is a a terrible comparison because it's not a horror. It's not like this at all, but it's like, like the the movie The Ring where it's like, oh, she's crawling out of the TV and I'm watching the TV, you know? Yeah. So there's this like meta scariness. So with this, it's like, oh my gosh, if I start reading this book aloud, what's going to happen? Exactly. Um, So it's like the medium is the, uh, the portal. And so that just adds this little kind of spooky, creepy factor to it. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's just start our deeper conversation with talking about Maggie as the heroine of the book. I I really like Maggie. She's also not necessarily a character that I have carried with me. She feels very much not a singular heroine like Anne Shirley or um I don't know some of like our or Nancy Drew like some of our favorite children's book heroines. But she's great. She's very brave. And there's some uh, fun commentary on like there's that moment when Maggie at the end of the book and she's standing up and she's about to read out loud. And her aunt Eleanor is thinking like, oh, I want to compare her to a hero. But all of the heroes from my books are men and Maggie is braver than all of them. 
And so I, I really liked that. And she felt like she felt like a true 12 year old to me. I agree. She felt like a true 12 year old. She was she wasn't like nondescript in a way that sometimes can be frustrating with with Kidlet where, you know, you kind of have this heroine or hero who's just a vessel for the reader to project onto. Maybe a little bit of that. But I think what really struck me, and maybe because her name is Maggie, I kept comparing mm-hmm. her to Meg in yeah. Her Angle in Time. Was there, was it this kind of beginning uh, to the story about how Maggie isn't like other girls or isn't like other kids? There isn't this like, there aren't these school scenes where she's being picked on or bullied or she doesn't fit in. There's like a little like kind of offhanded line about how like, you know, she misses school a lot and she yeah. doesn't care. <laughs> so it's clear like, you know, she's not, you know, um, her peers and her friends don't really play a role here. But she's also not like ostracized in that way, which I think has struck me about some of the kid lit that we've read that it's like, like feels like the author is compelled to set their character apart as an outsider. And I think that can be really validating for kids. I want to say like kids who feel like outsiders who read a book and connect with that. And then that character goes on to be the hero of the story. That's really powerful. But also like, I like the idea that you don't need to be not like other girls or not like other kids to end up being the hero. And she is special. Like she has a gift, but it's not the setup of, you know, she's special. And so she's always been on the outside until her gift emerges kind of thing. Yeah. And she, in an interesting way, she feels, although she is, you know, the primary heroine for sure, she feels on par with the main adult characters, especially there's a point in the book that kind of like breaks everyone, scatters everyone, and we're hopping each chapter into a different perspective. So we're seeing what her dad is doing. We're seeing what Dustfinger is doing. We're seeing what Eleanor is doing. And so they all feel like a true cast of characters together. And she's just elevated to being as important as all of these adult characters who are going around about their business. And she's also never fully left alone. Like she always has an escort. So she's always with Eleanor or um, Finoglio towards the end. She's not by herself either, which I actually found really lovely and kind of comforting as, as bad things are happening. She's with an adult to keep her safe. Mm, that's a really good point. I, I hadn't made note of that, but now that you say that, that's very different um, from a lot of the kidlet we've read. And that is really lovely. It also really makes me wonder about, you know, cultural norms and storytelling. I wish I knew more about um, about German kidlet and maybe like continental European kidlet in general, because like like is there something particularly American about like these <laughs> in- the independent right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, and Mortimer, Maggie's father, he's really. There were so many points in the story where I just wanted him to turn on Dustfinger, right? Or 
there are a lot of characters, even though there is this like great darkness and there's this really evil character, all of the quote good guys are really invested in not killing anybody. Mm-hmm. So even though there is like this darkness and violence to this book, it's not glorified at all by having the like opposing characters engage in it. It's just, it, it is a really interesting tone. I also think at the beginning of the book, as you were talking about how Funka doesn't really like set Maggie apart necessarily. The beginning of the book establishes this really lovely close relationship between Maggie and her father. And that like binds the book together. Mm-hmm so beautifully what? great turn of phrase <laughs> <laughs> and yes her father is a book binder which is just like she has books all over her house he knows how to fix books he binds them beautifully for her it's just like this lovely bookworm fantasy right but throughout the book she isn't necessarily like she is discovering her identity a little bit there's a little bit of coming of age but her motivation isn't like to kill the bad guy, it's to keep her father safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it's really sweet. Yeah. I loved the image of, you know, oh, Maggie's 12. And I loved how it started with her talking about, or, you know, Funko telling us like that when Maggie can't sleep, she goes into her dad's room and gets in bed and listens to him turning the pages of the book he's reading. And that's the most soothing thing. And she drifts right off to sleep like yeah that's so sweet I love that I know I'm wondering if any other characters in the book really stood out to you I mean I really loved Eleanor (laughs) yeah she's hilarious she's hilarious I loved her amazing library I liked the um like you said Maggie and Mo which is what she calls her dad um have books all over their house and Eleanor is a very different type of book keeper she has her like beautiful library and some things in storage but there's like a a great comment where Maggie is like they were they're having dinner in the kitchen she said even though there are no books in the kitchen (laughs) it's still pretty cozy because they have stacks of books (laughs) in their kitchen and all over um I liked how um I mean protective she is of her books you can't have flames anywhere in her house and you, she, she bemoans the fact that she can't afford certain books. She's clearly spent like her fortune on, on the library. And, and I like that she's a little harsh with Maggie at first. She's not, she's, it's not that she's not sure about her. It feels more like she just feels like she must keep people she might love at a distance until they really prove themselves. And, um, yeah, I really, I loved that relationship. And I think that Maggie learns kind of a different type of bookishness from Eleanor, which is fun. I definitely loved all the commentary on different people treating their books. I found it interesting that the sort of, I don't know how we want to differentiate them, the earthbound humans in the story compared to the characters who have sprung from this novel, the human characters the um the people love books and treat them really preciously and then the book characters a lot of them can't read and they don't 
have this like love of books and literature and stories. And I thought that that was really an interesting, like, I'm still trying to think about like, hmm, is there a little meaning behind that? Or is it just the way it had to be for the plot to work? That's very interesting. I wonder if, I mean, I don't think a writer would, seems like a stretch for something a writer would be saying, but is there something there about, uh, I don't know. I think we should come back to this as we continue to talk more thematically about what this is saying about books and storytelling. Yeah, I think Funke is saying a lot about it. So there's a lot about the physicality of books like reading a character out of a book and having them exist in our world. Whereas like, what's the function of when you're reading a book and you're getting lost in the story and it seems like the characters are alive to you. There's like that sort of tension between the metaphorical, oh, this character seems alive to me versus, oh my goodness, this character is actually alive. Then Funka inserts an author into the story and it becomes all about writing and writers creating magic and creating stories. And then we have these characters who can read aloud and create this magic. And so there seems to be so much about that relationship between reader and writer and the magic of like creating a story together that I found really lovely. But yeah, there were a lot of passages. I'll have to flip through my book a little bit. There were a lot of passages that I was like, this is really lovely. There's there's so much meta commentary here for us to talk about. Yeah, I really like that too about the the reader and writer together producing the magic because I do think yeah, it could be a story really just about um focusing on writers, which I think is I can't think of an example, but feels like something maybe I've like read before about like the authors who are calling these um, creations into into life. But the fact that it takes a reader and not not just a reader, but someone reading out loud to actually not create the magic because I think that the book obviously acknowledges that there is magic of just the reading experience that's not calling forth uh, beings. Um, But to make this world uh, leaping happen. Yeah, so let's see. On page 528, Mo, or Mortimer, we find out his full name is, he says, I'm not a writer who can make up for himself the words he wants to read aloud. I'm only a kind of book doctor. I can give books new bindings, rejuvenate them a little, stop the bookworms from eating them, and prevent them from losing their pages over the years like a man loses his hair. But inventing the stories in them, filling new empty pages with the right words, I can't do that. That's a very different trade. A famous writer once wrote, an author can be seen as three things, a storyteller, a teacher, or a magician. But the magician, the enchanter, is in the ascendant. I always thought he was right about that. That is lovely. It's interesting. I mean, this book is like pretty filled with literary theory and thinking about the importance of how you read, um, not just what you read. And I think that is really special. And I, I like that. I, I like that too, that the, um, 
calling forth beings from the from books is like it's dark. <laughs> it's scary. Yeah. And I think that that is really profound and powerful because I think so many books about books are just about the coziness and comfort of books. And books obviously can be comforting. And I would even say that this, that ink cart is a comforting book in its own way. Um, but I mean, that ignores like most books, <laughs> I think, are not super comforting. Mm. They're challenging. And like maybe seeing your own challenges within the pages of a book is a source of comfort or or connection. Um, but yeah, I I I liked that. I I do want to add here, have you watched the movie? I might have when I was a kid, but I don't remember it at all. Okay, well, I watched the trailer. And I feel like, at least from the trailer, that they wildly missed the tone of this. Mm. That it felt like it felt like the movie Enchanted with Yeah. Um, which was, you know, similar setup of fairy tale creatures coming into the real world. But that it was the tone was like this kind of like zany, uh, funny uh sort of thing. And Oh, I was so bummed because I was, I think this could make a fantastic movie and maybe it is. Um, but, but I just, I highlight that because that potential misstep, because it really feels like this book could have verged in that direction, like just very silly or, um, overly focused on the cozy comfort factor and not the actual like darkness that can come from the setup. Yeah. The characters when they emerge, well, Dustfinger, even though he, he's been in, you know, the quote real world for like nine years or something, he just wants to go back home so desperately. And then we also have characters, like we see them emerge and they are totally disoriented. And a lot of dis- Dustfinger's commentary is like, I never, I can never get used to these cars. It's so loud here. And it's just, he is of a different world and he has trouble integrating. And then, I thought this was interesting. Um, we have, uh, what is his name? Amid? The young boy, and he's described as a young Arab boy from... Um, the 10,000 or, uh, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, and he comes out of the book and is like, he kind of just acclimates right away. Um, and part of me, like I was reading and I was trying to be very conscious about race, especially because it was written in 2003. And I was like, I don't know if it's, a good thing that he assimilates so quickly or a bad thing. Um, and I was a little nervous because he pretty quickly just becomes Dustfinger's servant. But then he does kind of become his own character and do things in his own right. Um, and there ends up being some interesting commentary around him. Um, but anyway, the main point being different characters handle the transition differently. Capricorn, the villain, 
is a villain in the book. And then in the real world, he just stays a villain and maintains his, his greed. Um, and then Maggie's mom, she gets pulled into the book. This is a series. So there are two more books in the Inkheart trilogy that kind of, I think, will explain more about Maggie's mother and her experiences. Um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this other than, yes, it's not as simple as reading the characters out of the book and they're like, oh, here, let me be your new best friend. Um, Reading the characters out of the books, A, takes something away from the real world, which is always dangerous, and B, the characters can be really disoriented and dangerous. Well, and I wondered if there was some commentary on the taking things out of the real world. Like, is there something here about becoming so immersed in your books that the things that are around you, the real things around you fade or become less important or, um, just seem less real than the stories in the pages of the book. And it just, I mean, it's such, that was so interesting to me because I'm like, but she's, she's writing a book. So does she, can she, can she actually be (laughs) suggesting that? But I, I think that this, there's just a lot of complexity in what she's exploring with the idea of reading. I mean, to kind of write a whole series where the premise is reading out loud is a little dangerous. <laughs> it's pretty in- interesting. Okay. Speaking of being surprised about things that a writer is writing, let's talk about the author in the book, Finoglio, because he's like really prideful that he created these characters and they've come to life, even though Mo is the one who brought them to life. And there's like this kind of thing of like the author's pride and like the author's control and like feeling like this powerful creator is an author and it's not necessarily seen as a good thing. But by the end of the book, Maggie kind of decides maybe I want to be a writer because I like to create these stories. I like the idea of creating this magic for people. So there's like this positive and negative spin on being an author and a writer. Yeah. I mean, I think that I really liked that because I, I personally, <laughs> as a reader who does not do any <laughs> creative writing, I really do believe that once the book is published, once it's out in the world, like the author, for better or worse, has to relinquish some control over it. Like the book is the book. And that's maybe different now because we have social media and and author interviews that you can download in a second and you can you can look up for most books what the yeah. author was <laughs> intending but that's not how i like to read i like the book to kind of stand on its own and let it meet me as a reader where i am um i want to be able to notice what stands out to me rather than look for what the author um says they were intending, et cetera. And so I, I liked that depiction of like, well, it really is kind of 
this is not to discount the author who is the the genius and the artist, but that then it is the reader who finishes the creation. Or I love the, um, I love the Nabokov image in one of his essays about reading where, you know, there's this mountain and the author is ascending from one side and the reader meets the author at the top. And it's only, you know, they, the union of the two is what creates the the power of the story. So I, I liked that. Well, I'm really glad that we're talking more about Inkheart with our Patreon community at the end of the month, because I have a feeling that our readers are going to have a lot more to say about the themes in this book. And Sarah, I want to get to our core question here, which is what does this book say about childhood? Well, there's so much going on in this book. I think maybe more so than many of our others, it has a really complex perspective on childhood. I think one of the obvious answers is how um, powerful stories are for children. But I did mark a particular line that really stood out to me while I was reading. And it's in chapter 15. It's right at the very end of chapter 15, right before um, Maggie learns this power her father has and what happened to her mother. Um, He tells her that he didn't want to reveal the secret to her now. He would always, he'd always planned on doing it when she was older. And she thinks, why do grownups think it's easier for children to bear secrets than the truth? Don't they know about the horror stories we imagine to explain the secrets? And that just like really leapt off the page to me. I marked that spot too. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. And I can't say it any better than that. But I think that's a huge part of what she is saying in this book um, is like kind of both the horror and beauty of a child's imagination and how important it is to have adults who can both foster imagination and temper it when needed. Um, and how like both the, the truth and imaginary stories are really important kids and it really is contextual and um I just I loved I loved that passage yeah there's also a part where Maggie is thinking about how afraid she is and that this fear is different than anything else she's experienced and she's like I've been I've been fearful when reading a book but that fear from reading a book on the page is different from this real fear And so it does seem to suggest like, yes, processing things through stories is really important for kids and for parents, but you also have to walk your kid through real life with real truths and facts because that's where the, those true emotions come. That's where the real fear crops up. That's where truly bad things can happen. Um, this like real versus imaginary dichotomy. There's also that that element where Maggie is um, talking to Dustfinger, and she's like, "But don't you, 
want to know how your story ends before you go back. And he says, well, Maggie, you don't know how your story will end, do you? And she just gets quiet. And that's like really all there is to it. But there's just like a lot of these realizations that she's coming to about like, death is real and life is precarious and there's actual danger here that, yeah, you do kind of start to realize that scary stuff as a kid. It reminds me of the Mr. Rogers quote where he talks about um, parents processing things with scary things with kids um, and how important that is. So yeah, there's, it's not, it's not exactly a coming of age story like we've read, but I did find some really poignant moments um, where Maggie has to, has to grow up a little bit. Well, Chelsea, I'm curious before we get into pairings, do you remember much from the rest of the series and would you recommend going on for people who really enjoyed this particular book? I think that I read book number two. I don't think I ever read book number three. It was kind of one of those things where I aged out. Mm -hmm. Like Inkheart was the perfect time for me to read it, but then I started to age out a little bit. Um, I had to go and look at the plot synopsis for, I think the second one is Ink Spell. And I do have that on my shelf. So maybe I will read it. Um, It happens one year later. Um, and it's dealing with the same book and like fairy tale stuff. And so, um, yeah, I think that if you really liked this one, especially on audio, it would be fun to go on. I think if you're looking for a read aloud series to continue with your family, it would be great. Um, a couple of other Cornelia Funko books that I remember really liking as a kid were The Thief Lord and Dragon Rider. So those I remember being great. I haven't read them since, but they are still in print. They're still, you know, popular on the shelves. Um, and so I would just um, broadly recommend those if you want more of, of this author's work. All right. Good to know. Well, let's get into our pairings then. Yeah. Do you want to go first, Sarah? Sure. Um, my first pairing is a little-known book that starts a series. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't stop thinking about Outlander by Diana Gabaldon when I was reading Inkheart. Because, I mean, obviously they're totally different. Outlander, I don't know if it's a romance. Because they don't all end with happily for now. It's not. It's a, I would call it romantic historical fantasy. Okay, great. It's romantic or, historical fantasy. Yeah. And there are very sexy scenes throughout the, yes. the books and really graphic torture scenes throughout the books. So it is not um, cozy. It is certainly not YA. Um, but here's what it is about if you are still unfamiliar with this. Um Starts in the 1940s and a woman named Claire, she has been serving as a nurse on the World War II battlefields and she is reunited with her husband who is also serving in in the war and they go on a second honeymoon to Scotland. While she is there, she finds a portal unknowingly and is taken back in time approximately 200 years to 1700s Scotland where she 
Well, it's a it's romantic historical fantasy. So, <laughs> I mean, there is a very epic swoon-worthy romance in this book, but there's a lot of like um there's a lot of internal conflict too for Claire about her husband in her present time and falling in love in this past time. And I just I think what what struck me is the commitment to a degree of realism and darkness within a fantasy that could be told without any realism or darkness in both of these books. Like it's not just, oh, they're swept away or, you know, the characters come out of the book and Mm -hmm. it is this, um, you know, this cozy, wonderful, life-giving experience or Claire gets swept back into time and that's where she's really supposed to be. And, and, um, it's all beautiful and, um, epic, et cetera. So I really, I I thought that like fish out of water, like not being in your place and time was portrayed in kind of similar ways in each of these, these books. So, but of course, both also have the fantasy element both in terms of the technical definition of fantasy and the like um, reader wish fulfillment fantasy elements of, of what we want to see from these books. So if you haven't read Outlander, um, I really like the first three books and then I've tried to continue on and they've gotten too long for me. So if, if it's like a, you're afraid to commit to a really lengthy series. I think you can be pretty satisfied with those first three three books, um, which is not to say that they that it ends with a neat bow after book three or anything. But um, that's where I where I would recommend stopping, unless you are absolutely captivated and ready to take on a you know sixteen hundred page book. So yeah, that's the Outlander series. I like that line from one children's book to adult book. Okay. Jimbalahiri wrote this tiny little book about books. And I think that it makes a lovely pairing here. It is The Clothing of Books by Jimbalahiri. And it's like 70 pages or something super short. And it's just like these short little essays about book covers and how book covers relate to the contents inside of them, how authors feel about their book covers, and how authors feel about readers interpreting their book covers, about picking up a book because of how the cover looks, about buying bookcases that show off your beautiful books. And so she kind of compares uh, book covers with wearing uniforms She talks about that sort of relationship between the publisher and the author and the marketing of a book. Um, She talks about, quote, naked books, which are books without the jackets that you just kind of pick up and you don't know what to expect from a book and more. And they're just these really lovely musings on reading, talking about that physicality of books. And I just think this is such a perfect pairing with Mo being a bookbinder and all of this conversation about him treating the books with such care and tenderness. And I also think that this is just a really great book to read 
in conversation with so much, I've seen so much commentary around literary fiction covers all looking the same or rom-com covers for books that aren't really rom-coms and just all about marketing and book covers and reader expectations. And I think that this is a lovely book to insert into the conversation. So that is The Clothing of Books by Jhumpa Lahiri. And Jhumpa Lahiri is also well-known as a translator. Um, She often translates her own work from English and Italian. And um, so, yeah, I think that that's a a fun pairing here. Oh, great. I I had heard of that book, but never picked it up. So I'm glad you put it back on our radar. All right. My second pairing, and I just have two today, is The Thirteenth Tale by Diane Setterfield. Have you read this one? No, I haven't, but it's, I know it's beloved by people who love books about books. Yes. It is beloved by people who love books about books. And it really pairs well with like anyone who likes gothic stories like Rebecca or Jane Eyre. It's got that kind of creepy house vibe. But I am pairing this because this is a darker book about books. (laughs) It is not light or cozy. It is gothic. Um, And so it is a story about a woman, a writer named Vita Winter. And she, I always think this is funny. She's famous for a collection of 12 stories. Nobody is famous for a collection of short stories. (laughs) Very very few people. But whatever, that's the premise of this story. (laughs) And um, she somehow has made a vast fortune from from this. Um, But the this this detail i think is so such a great hook the story the collection is called 13 tales but there are only 12 stories oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you know she has kind of this um fandom for lack of a better word <laughs> that is obsessed with you know, reading the 12 stories for clues about what the 13th tale might be. And there's just this whole like mystery and sense of enigma built around this author. And then she reaches out to a woman named Margaret Lee. And I'm almost positive that Margaret in the book is either like a, a book binder or her father is. She works in antiquarian books. So that's a connection, of course, to Mo as well. Um, but for some reason, Miss Winter chooses Margaret to come to her mansion, her estate, and tell her, tell Margaret her story. And perhaps her story is the 13th tale. Um, and then it is kind of back and forth between hearing Margaret's or hearing uh, Vita Winter's story and the relationship developing between Vita and Margaret as they they bond over the story. And Vita's story is like super creepy, super gothic. They're like, it's got all of the like uncanny elements. There are creepy twins. Um, there's like, there's, there's incestuous attraction. There are doppelgangers. There's a governess. There's like a, of course, a crumbling manor house and garden mazes. It's just got all of those details that if you enjoy gothic books, 
it's very intentionally inserting for you. And yes, it's heavy handed, but because of the setup, it's just supposed to be heavy handed like that. And it's very, very immersive in that way. There are definitely twists. Honestly, I don't really remember the big twisty reveal. And I'm kind of hoping that maybe I continue to forget over the next few years and then I can read it again. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise That's the myself. best. That's the best. <laughs> um, so this book is, I would describe it as fun and propulsive, but it is also dark and creepy. So if you want books about books, but they tend to be too saccharine for you, try The 13th Tale by Diane Setterfield. All right. My last uh, pairing here is The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow. And we're not big fantasy readers, Sarah. We're on record for that. But there are a few authors that we like. Um, I specifically tend to like authors who really ground their fantasy in something more real, like in the real world. So Inkheart really is that sweet spot. Alex E. Harrow, I really like her fantasy as well. So in the 10,000 doors of January, we have January scholar and she is the ward of this wealthy guy, Mr. Locke. And so she goes to his mansion and she just feels utterly out of place. He loves a bunch of antiques and artifacts and decorations. And she's just like, I just feel like I'm an ornament on the wall. But then she finds a book and This book can take her to different worlds and has adventure and mystery and suspense. And it's it's just a great pairing for Inkheart. If you really liked this and you liked getting sucked into a book about books and where there's a book within a book and where there's fantasy and suspense and mystery and a brave heroine, I think that this will really be another sweet spot for you. So um, January... Like I said, she like gets sucked into this book. She's figuring out who she is through these adventures, but there's mystery and suspense as well. And it's just super well-written, which I found Inkheart to be as well. So again, checks a lot of boxes, book about books, strong heroine, other worlds. I don't want to say too much more about it because I feel like you could just give too much away. Um, the cover is really beautiful. The cover of The 10,000 Doors of January is gorgeous. So 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Hero is another good pick if you kind of want to read a like for Inkheart. All right, listeners. Well, if you want to talk more books and books about books and all of those readerly good things, we have so much coming up for you this summer on both the main feed and in our Patreon community. We would love to reach more listeners, to share the literary nerdiness with them, and we need your help. There are three great and completely free ways to show novel pairings some love on the internet. One is to write a review on Apple Podcasts. You hear every podcaster you listen to say this, and yes, it really does make a big difference. Two, Share novel pairings on your social media platform of choice, whether in your Instagram stories or in a post about your favorite podcasts. Or three, share novel pairings on your blog. We are happy to answer interview questions via email. So send us any inquiries at novelpairingspod at gmail.com. 
We'll be sharing summer announcements soon, so be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to share buzzy summer books we can't wait to read, paired with backlist titles you can find at the library. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Thank you.